Welcome to the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. Since 1937, MUCC has been committed to conserve, protect, and enhance Michigan's natural resources and outdoor heritage. Now, here's your host, Mike Avery. Welcome once again to the Michigan Out of Doors podcast, a presentation of the folks from MUCC, Michigan United Conservation Clubs, a group that I am a member of and I uh, support their actions as they are doing their best to uh, promote and protect the outdoor lifestyle here in the great state of Michigan. One of the main reasons for that, Dan Eichinger, the executive director of MUCC, with us now on this podcast. Uh, Dan, always a pleasure. Uh, Welcome back. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You folks all at MUCC are so busy. Your staff is small. You're running a thousand different directions. What are you working on right now, Dan? I've got my luggage here in my office. I just got back uh, late last night. I was down in uh, Washington, D.C. We did a congressional briefing yesterday on grass carp. And uh, that's an issue I know uh, folks uh, in Michigan are seeing grass carp show up more and more in Saginaw Bay. And uh, there's a, some real concerning, uh, there's a real concerning situation coming out of the Sandusky River down in Ohio, uh, in the waters of Lake Erie. There's a reproductively viable population of grass carp uh, over there. And uh, that's something that there hasn't been a lot of focus or attention on grass carp. A lot of people have been focused on big head and silver coming up out of the Chicago River. Um, and trying to keep them from getting into the, uh, getting into the Great Lakes through Lake Michigan. But, um, we're going to be spending a lot of more, a lot more time over the next year or two trying to get folks uh, more aware of of a carp problem that we have that's already in uh, already in the Great Lakes here in Michigan. Well, aren't grass carp considered an Asian carp as well? They are. They are part of that family. Uh, the you know the the thing that's hard for me to understand about grass carp is that uh, they've been stocked um, because they you know help to control aquatic vegetation. Um, and the belief was that they were stocking fish that were uh, triploid. And what that means is that they were not, um, they were not believed to be reproductively viable. Unfortunately, the technique that's used, uh, it's a heat shocking or heat treatment technique for those eggs to render them sterile, uh, is only about 90% effective. So, um, in spite of that fact, the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, some folks down in uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources and other places have been stocking uh, grass carp or have used grass carp to control aquatic vegetation uh, from eggs, 10% of which we know on average uh, were reproductively viable. Um, these are fish that are they're, they're voracious uh, eaters of aquatic vegetation, so that's going to have an impact on uh, migratory waterfowl that uh, you know, the central flyway, the Michigan, uh, Mississippi flyway, there's a big funnel that comes down. Some of that funnel comes right over the, um, right through Saginaw Bay, right down to Lake Erie. So that's a great stopover for migrating ducks and geese. They load up, they feed, and then they get in the air and continue the rest of their migration for their wintering grounds. So if we're affecting aquatic vegetation, it's going to negatively impact our waterfowl. And those are also places like Smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, walleye, um, those are all spawning areas and feeding areas for those fish. So if we let this thing get out of hand, it's going to be a real game changer, um, not just on the fishing side and the water ecology side, but also potentially on the migratory waterfowl side, too. So 
we got to get our hands on it. So the concern is different than from Big Head and Silver Carp, or, or basically the same, Dan. It's a little bit. It's a little bit different. Um, Big Head and Silver will compete directly for forage and for um, food with native fish. Grass carp don't directly compete necessarily with uh, native species for food, but they impact the they they basically impact the aquatic habitat that all those native species depend upon. So it's a little bit more of an indirect competition, but the effect is essentially the same. Um, that you know whether you're you know whether you're affecting native fish because you're eating what they eat, or you're ruining the places where they live and spawn. Um, it's going to be bad, you know, it's bad for, bad for native fish. So, um, it's, it's just something, you know, like I said, there hasn't been a lot of focus on grass carp. Um, and we just think there needs to be a little bit more attention, a little bit more energy that's getting expended on solving that problem, um, by Michigan department of natural resources, by Ohio department of natural resources and other folks, um, because it's still possible for us to eradicate that population. And we heard that yesterday. Uh, from some of the folks in the U.S. Geological Survey who are doing a lot of research on grass carp right now. Eradication still seems to be possible. And as I told uh, all the the, uh, offices that were represented at that briefing yesterday, we get to have that conversation once. We get one shot at eradication. And if we miss that opportunity, then we're talking about management. And no one has yet been able to figure out how to effectively manage an aquatic invasive species um, so we have to get this right, and we have to elevate the urgency uh, and, and the activity level to make sure uh, that we, we prevent this from becoming a problem. We prevent that real establishment of that population there. Well, the first step, I would think, is to, is to stop the stocking programs, right? Absolutely. That was, that was the first thing that I started with yesterday in my comments, that you know, anytime you're talking about invasive species, the first thing that you have to do is shut the faucet off. Um, and there are... Uh, there's a kind of a patchwork of state laws in the different states that are involved in all this about how they view grass carp. Um, grass carp are not, uh, le- they cannot legally be possessed in the state of Michigan. There are some other states uh, that have that same, that treat grass carp the same way under the law. But unfortunately, not all the states uh, that potentially feed into the Great Lakes uh legally recognize grass carp as uh, a prohibited, prohibited species or injurious wildlife. Um, so that's kind of step number one. And there are some federal actions that we can take uh, uh, to go down that road. Uh, but it would be um, an also effective if those states would just simply kind of get their act together and uh, legally treat grass carp the way that we have in Michigan since 1969. So... Does the fact that we're involved in a in a battle against a silver carp and big head, how does that affect this grass carp? Does does it somehow elevate grass carp saying, hey, here's what this could become? Or are there so many resources being spent on the other two that grass carp have been relegated to a back seat and a back priority? Yeah, I think that's part. I, I think it's more the latter that, you know, everybody's attention has rightly been focused on big head and silver. Um, and, and there's just been less attention that's been paid on grass carp. And some of the, you know, the other thing that we talked about yesterday in the briefing was that, you know, the, the management actions and the steps that we might take to eradicate the grass carp population 
there may be some applicability to how we would respond if we are, you know, if we're not successful in keeping Big Head and Silver uh, out of out of Lake Michigan, for example. So there there is some learning and there's an exercise that we can undertake here to learn how we might react and respond and eradicate Big Head and Silver if they ever get into Lake Michigan by how we are treating grass carp in like the Sandusky River and in some places like in Saginaw Bay and, and other uh, and others where they have been found. So there's some kind of cross pollinating and technique that we can use there. Um, but again, I think the main, you know, the main issue is that Big Head and Silver have gotten a lot of attention. There's a lot of conversation about them and we need to just elevate some awareness and elevate some urgency on the grass carp side, because that's an issue that we are very actively dealing with a population now. Um, and there are steps that we need to be taking today, steps we should have been taking over the last several years to really eradicate that, uh, eradicate that population. So, so that's part, you know, that's part of what the other, you know, kind of the other message that we were trying to deliver yesterday is that um, we need to look at, you know, Congress's role here is largely funding uh, some of the research and management activities on big head and silver, um, and we need them to be committing and directing resources specifically uh, to those same activities on grass carp. And some funding now through like the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is supporting grass carp research, um, and we ask them to consider enhancing the, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative funding for grass carp to specifically deliver an eradication plan and eradication strategy um, and move beyond just sort of, you know, study and learning and understanding, which is an important foundation for eradication. But we need to be moving very, very quickly and very aggressively on, on an eradication strategy. Congress can help um, by providing the resources and the support to Michigan DNR, USGS, Fish and Wildlife Service, Ohio DNR, and some of the other actors and agencies that are involved in this one. So. So that was the message we were trying to deliver yesterday in Congress. Well, I will be um, curious to see how that message is received, and I'll look to uh, MUCC to uh, keep an eye on this. Of course, if you want to know more about MUCC and the issues they're involved in, uh, MUCC.org, MUCC.org is one website, another one, MichiganOutOfDoors.com. On Facebook, Facebook.com slash MUCC, and on Instagram at MUCC1937. Dan, you brought this up about uh, if Big Head and Silver Carp were to get into Lake Michigan. I know the goal is to obviously keep them out of there, but even even with the best protection that man can come up with, can we keep them completely out of Lake Michigan, or is it a foregone conclusion that a few of those fish are going to work their way into that body of water? You know, I don't think anyone can say with the with the suite of options that are that are under consideration now that we can, you know, 100% guarantee that we'll never have big head and silver in Lake Michigan. Um, but what we can do is, um, you know, imp- by employing like that Brandon Road lock and dam and getting that online, um, that's our, you know, that's the best available de- defense that we have today. The unfortunate thing there is, you know, that's not going to come online, best case scenario, until the mid-2020s. So we've got another, you know, seven or eight years of kind of waiting with our fingers crossed with the hope that, you know, the current electric barrier is able to deter fish from moving any farther up 
the Chicago waterway than they have already. Um, so the, you know, we are, you know, we're really hoping that, you know, hoping that those, uh, the current technology that's installed there uh, can hold us over for that long. Um, but it's also, you know, as I was kind of referring to earlier, you know, sort of cross-pollinating response plan and eradication strategies, you know, it's possible. And, and, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs that the agencies would have to go through here, but to me, it seems that if we have, if we're able to devise a fairly effective eradication strategy for grass carp, like in the Sandusky River, for example, it may be it may be very possible for us um, to export that technology and export those strategies um, to the Chicago River, whether or not the Brandon Road Lock and Dam is online before we're able to do so or not. Um, and that that to me provides some hope. We heard from. Uh, from the region director from the USGS yesterday that they're actively studying uh, some treatment techniques um, for selectively eradicating big head and silver, selectively eradicating grass carp. And, you know, so hopefully we're on the cusp of having some treatment techniques that are available to us that we can employ in those interim years while we're waiting for that infrastructure to get built uh, to create sort of a more physical barrier, physical deterrence to moving uh, silver and big head up uh, into Lake Michigan. So I was very pleased to see that the governor in his state of the state address mentioned Asian carp and the battle against Asian carp. But I wonder if I didn't put too much significance on that because uh, Michigan as a state, we can only do so much, right? There are so many other partners that need to get involved in this to make this battle um, become more of a reality. Yeah, we've got, you know, we've got eight Great Lakes states. Uh, we've got a provincial government in Ontario uh, that's involved in this conversation as well. And, and uh, the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and the government of Canada have been uh, pretty staunch allies for, uh, for the state of Michigan uh, and other states that are very concerned about um, big head and silver, uh, big head and silver carp. You know, the thing that we have to, we have to continue to do is, um, you know, continue to put pressure on uh, the state of Illinois and, 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 and some folks in, in the state of Indiana, unfortunately, and get them to uh, more fully embrace the need to deal with uh, big head and silver and keep them out of the Great Lakes. You know, their reality is a little bit different than ours. They're living with these, uh, they're living with these things now. And so, you know, their, you know, maybe their feelings about the issue are a little bit different because we're talking about preventing the establishment and they're trying to wrestle with now an established population of big head and silver carp, um, not just in the Chicago River, but in the Illinois River and other places throughout uh, the state of Illinois. So, you know, the best thing that we can do, and, and the governor deserves a lot of credit for, for trying to ride herd in the region on this, is, you know, get the other states together and, and work to address um, the issues that are identified by the state of Illinois or, or uh, the federal government and moving Brandon Road forward. And one of them is um, whenever you're doing an Army Corps of Engineers project, the federal government requires what's called like a local match or a local cost share. Uh, so that state or that municipality or whatever that, that unit of government might be has to get a little skin in the game to help pay for the operation and maintenance of that infrastructure. And there's a pretty hefty bill with uh, – projecting costs for operating and maintaining the Brandon Road Lock and Dam. What the governor announced uh, in his state of the state, and then he followed up last week, Wednesday, with a 
press conference in uh, South Haven that I was able to attend was um, trying to divvy up the co- that local cost share among all the states uh, that touch the Great Lakes and uh, and uh, the province of Ontario. So you apportion that local match by the amount of uh, the amount of surface area or surface water uh, of the Great Lakes that are apportioned to your state. And Governor Snyder's already gotten commitments. Uh, from enough of the other states and the governments of, of uh, Ontario to come up with about 90% of the, the, the funds for that local cost share. So we can remove that uh, as an issue or, to bar- or as a barrier to moving forward with Brandon Road. And we're just going to have to keep kind of systematically working through uh, some of those issues and some of those objective, uh, objections uh, until we can get uh, that plan presented to Congress in August of 2019. Congress will need to adopt it uh, and appropriate it, and then we'll need to get busy um, to construct and build it and hopefully get it online here uh, in 2025. This is the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. We're talking with MUCC Executive Director Dan Eichinger. If you want to learn more about MUCC, check them out online at MUCC.org or MichiganOutofdoors.com. On Facebook, Facebook.com slash MUCC1937, and on Instagram at MUCC1937. Dan, I hate to uh, concentrate this time around on on such negative topics. We talked about Asian carp, but we've got to talk about CWD. That's what's on the mind right now of a lot of Michigan deer hunters. I recently interviewed um, MUCC Chief uh, Information Officer Nick Green on my radio show, and he said CWD could well change the face of deer hunting here in Michigan, and that got me pretty concerned, and I'm very concerned about CWD, as are many other Michigan hunters. Absolutely. CWD, you know, the people stop me in the street and they say, what keeps you up at night? And the answer is always chronic wasting disease. Um, You know, anybody who's listening, you know, listens to this podcast, anybody who listens to your show, Mike, um, deer hunting is the iconic outdoor activity in the state of Michigan has been uh, has been for decades now. And, you know, chronic wasting disease is a direct uh, is a direct threat to the existence of deer hunting. Uh, in the state of Michigan as we know it. And that's not histrionics. That's not hysteria. Um, that's just a fact. And we've seen that. Uh, we've seen that scenario, unfortunately, play out in some other states out west. state of Wyoming's got a terrible CWD problem in, uh, in their mule deer herd. Um, the state of Wisconsin is kind of always held up as the example of the state that we don't want to become. Um, we have to be aggressive about how we respond to CWD. And what that means um, is that the way that we hunt deer um, and what people uh, have become accustomed to uh, for hunting deer, whether that's uh, the number of deer that you're used to seeing, some of the methods and techniques that you might use, um, the composition of some of the seasons and the regulatory structure for how we hunt deer. All of those things have to be part of the conversation so that we, we get a handle on this disease because we're, you know, we're quite literally talking about uh, the future of deer hunting and the future of our deer herd in Michigan. And that's not something we can play around with. We all have to be, uh, we all have to be willing to to examine how we hunt, when we hunt, where we hunt, uh, put all that stuff on the table so that we're we're talking about moving this, you know, so that we're talking about deer hunting, twenty and thirty years from now in the present tense and not in the past tense. 
Well, and one of the factors that's getting a lot of attention, at least with my listeners lately, is they're thinking, man, with CWD, at least in those areas, we're, we're going to see maybe some kind of a complete bait ban, at least in the southern part of the lower peninsula or the central part of the lower peninsula. But then I hear rumors out of Lansing, no, that can't happen for a variety of reasons. Do you have any sense for this at all yet, Dan? Well, we've uh, we've already lived with it. And, you know, in 2008, when there was a, a chronic wasting disease positive deer in a captive facility in Kent County, the CWD management plan at that time called for a peninsula-wide ban on baiting and feeding. That went into effect. It was in effect for three years. So I don't really buy the argument that it's impossible to, to do a baiting ban. We've, we've already done it. We've done it uh, recently and in recent memory. Um, you know, there's always there are always law enforcement challenges whenever we're talking about, um, you know, having to, you know, whether we're talking about um, enforcing a baiting and feeding ban, whether we're talking about uh, enforcing, uh, you know, uh, snagging regulations or w- whatever it might be. You know, anytime you're prohibiting a behavior, there are people out there that uh, that aren't going to follow the rules are going to break the law. Uh, we're not going to catch all those folks, um, but that doesn't mean that that's not the right thing to do. And I think the data and the recommendations from the CWD work group and the science community have all pointed to uh, a baiting and feeding ban as an appropriate response to helping to deal and manage, uh, deal with and manage a disease. And that's, that's going to move some people's cheese. There are a lot of people that like to hunt uh, over bait and there are a lot of people who like to, to feed deer. And, um, you know, we I understand that MECC's had a long-standing policy uh, uh, in op- opposition to the practice of baiting deer um, during uh, for hunting, and the reasons for that are are primarily disease-related. It's not a value judgment in how you hunt deer, um, but it is a fact that baiting and feeding concentrates deer at unnecessarily high densities. And anytime you're talking about a disease, um, you're talking about disease and disease management. Um, you have to look at you have to look at those factors that are contributing to um, concentrating deer on the landscape. Baiting and feeding is one of those factors. It's not the only factor, um, but it's one of those factors, and that's something that's within our scope of control to change. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of control on how we distribute deer on a landscape, um, but that's one that's that's one area where we do. Uh, so that means that's got to be part of the conversation. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are going to be upset about that. There were a lot of people who were upset in 2008 when that baiting and feeding ban came down for the lower peninsula. Um, but that's, you know, that's simply, you know, that's simply what the science, you know, what the science and the recommendations from, from people who really looked at this issue and studied this issue have, have pointed to. Dan, we talked about Asian carp. Now we're talking about CWD. I don't want to leave people with the impression that there's nothing but bad news on the Michigan outdoor horizon. I mean, we've got some great things going on in this state that that MUCC is also involved in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the hunting and fishing in the natural resources world is um, it's it's complex. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, species management. We're talking about how people connect with nature. Um, these are all, you know, for those of us who, who live in this world where this is not just, you know, vocation for some of us, um, but this is avocation, this is recreation, this is who, how we identify. Um, this is all, this is an all passion business here. And it's, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of, you know, a lot of threats and a lot of challenges, but, 
you know, there's an awful lot of good stuff that's going on, too. I mean, we think about um, some of the new thinking and the new ideas that we have about how to connect people with nature and how to get people outdoors. We've talked about our on-the-ground program on on uh, the podcast and on the show before. Um, we're finding new ways and new avenues to get people interested in hunting and fishing, get them interested in conservation, get them connecting more with the outdoors. We've got we're really happy that um, with our Gourmet on Wild program, we've got uh, uh, Dixie Dave, Dave Miner, who's uh, signed up to be uh, the new face of, of Gourmet on Wild, and he's going to be uh, partnering with us to deliver that program. And that's connecting connecting people who are not, you know, don't really have a strong connection to the outdoors with the hunting with the hunting community, with the fishing community, with the conservation community, and we do it through. Uh, food and if anybody has had a chance to sample any of uh, any of Dave's cooking, you know that what Dave is going to put in front of you uh, and how he's going to present elk and whitefish and trout and walleye and all the other good things that we uh, that we have at our Gourmet Gone Wild programs, it's a lot different than Grandpa's Deer Camp Chef. <laughs> um, and it tell you know telling the story of uh, you know of Michigan's outdoor heritage through food is a way that connects with people on a real kind of visceral level. I mean, there's all kinds of good stuff like that that's going on. Um, but we, you know, as it is, we always end up talking about the, we talk about the threats, we talk about the challenges, but um, Michigan's hunting and fishing community is is vibrant. We're active. Um, there's so much partnership that's happening between groups like MUCC and, and our affiliates and other people who work in this space. Um, there's a real sense of community now. And I think that, um, you know, something that I, I hope people, you know, hope, I hope people recognize and I hope that's one of the things they see as a value for, for MUCC is just the role that we get to play and being able to bring so many people together and bring so many diverse interests and diverse groups together to work on some of these things. You know, talking about CWD, for example, you know, we've got bear hunters involved in that conversation. We've got the angling community involved in that conversation. We've got the waterfowl community and, and, and the upland bird community involved in that conversation. And, and we do because, you know, we have created, you know, we have created enough community uh, within the hunting and fishing world um, that they all recognize a threat to deer hunting is a threat to salmon fishing and a threat to deer hunting is a direct threat to bear hunting and waterfowling and upland bird hunting, you know, grouse and woodcock. They all see, you know, how we're all connected to one another in this community. And that's a sense of togetherness that, you know, we might have had it 20, 30, 40 years ago, and we kind of let it, um, we kind of let it fall away. And we're, we've done a lot of work to try and bring that back together. And I think our community, even though we have some of these inner family differences about how we do things or when we do things or, you know, who uses what when they go hunting and who wears what when they go hunting, um, at the end of the day, on a lot of the big stuff like CARP, like CWD, like public lands, um, we're all together and we're all kind of in the same boat. And that's that's really gratifying. It's easy to get up every day and come to work because this community is, has come together pretty nicely on, on some of the real big, important issues that we're facing. Well, And along that line, I can't let you go without putting in a plug for MUCC membership. Strength in numbers, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you love to hunt and fish in the state of Michigan, if you care about these things, you know, we talk a lot about but we talk about legacy and we talk about heritage a lot. And those are terms I hear all the time when I go visit clubs, I go visit our other affiliates. You know, people are in this and they do this because they want to pass this tradition. They want to pass this heritage on to the next generation. That's why we get so, 
you know, that's why we are in the mix on CWD. That's why we're so active on things like carp that, you know, if we're going to have anything to pass on, we got to fight for this stuff. We got to protect it. We got to enhance it today. And that's, that's what motivates our work. And that's what motivates a lot of people to come and participate in MUCC because they can see that, you know, we're making those things happen. We're making those conversations happen. We're driving, you know, we're driving issues and driving conversations about stuff that are going to, if we get it right today, it means that we've got these resources available and these opportunities for my kids, my grandkids, uh, and future generations, because those are all the things that my parents and my grandparents and other folks like them, um, they did for me. They got involved and they got active and they participated in this community. And that's what MUCC is built on. Every everyday people, Joe Lunchbucket, folks who you know, participate in MUCC with their membership, and that enables us to do all this work and make sure that we've got these resources uh, here today and tomorrow as well. Very well said, Dan, and keep up the good work. Dan Eichinger, the executive director of MUCC, and our guest this time around on the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. One more time, if you want to learn more, check them out online at MUCC.org, MUCC.org, MichiganOutofdoors.com, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash MUCC1937, and on Instagram at MUCC1937. And we'll talk to you next time right here on the Michigan Out of Doors podcast.